Hi, I'm Justin King, and welcome to the Blue Chip Academy. As a five-star recruit, all-Big Ten corner, NFL vet, and Power 5 recruiting coordinator, I understand the emotions that go along with the recruiting process. The Blue Chip Academy is here to provide education, critical insights, and mentorship through the recruiting process for families and athletes alike. When athletes and their families have proper education and guidance, they're able to make better decisions and set themselves up for long-term success. Blue Chip Academy provides the resources and information that empowers athletes to create their own blue chip blueprint and take ownership of their careers. Blue Chip Academy exists because when athletes and their families are armed with the right information, they're able to make the decisions for themselves that positively impact their future. Again, I'll be your host, Justin King, and welcome to Blue Chip Academy. I think you're 100% right. Just keeping the main thing the main thing when you're going through the process because like, even with these added dynamics, whether they're the collectives and like the big contract offers, like you said, sometimes the support systems are the ones that are more concerned like, oh, someone's going to take advantage of this kid or someone's going to happen. And a lot of times I'm telling people or just the support where not many are that valuable coming out of high school. Like you, you have something to build. So like don't get it twisted about this number coming out here because you still have to get to school and you have to perform. Like, and if you're in the wrong fit, like that's going to be counterproductive to you performing or the end result that you're looking for. So like, that's like, to your point, like life changing money comes when you make it to the NFL or if for some reason you, I guess, land on a huge media deal as a college player, you know, something can happen, I guess, if you're in a free market of NIL, but yeah. And, and that's, that's great for those that it happens for. I think it's, you know, one thing with it is if if the place you're picking is if they're selling you and everybody else solely on not that's never solely but primarily on the money piece they're going to get a bunch of people coming there that that's what they're picking based based off of and if they're doing it out of high school and it's oh, is that really an organization that's going to have long-term sustained success now, we all know that the more money you, your collective or you know your program can provide from a standpoint of exposure and all this, it's going to have a huge impact. But if it's if you're an organization that has chosen to, you know, have all that money go to unproven you know players, is that really the the model? The NFL doesn't pay all their money to the rookies. This is they, true. They, they they wait to see how good they're going to be before all the money gets divvied out. This is not, nah, that's a fact that you brought up the collectives. I mean, sometimes they present themselves as support. I mean, I'm sure they're there to support, they're there to raise money, do different things, but they have a hand now in a level of the recruiting process. We saw with the Florida quarterback and what happened, him having to get the release from a previous deal made with the collectives. Do you feel like is they're making, they're like making the waters a little more murky or are they making it easier on the recruiting process? Like how do you view the, yeah, I think at every school it's it's different. Um, every situation is different. Every if collective, um, every football staff is different as well. Um, it is murkier. There, there's I don't think there's any way to look at it as not being murkier. It, it adds a, another element to the equation. Um, some places um, the collectives they may say they're not, but some places they're more involved in the recruiting process. Other places they're not as much in the recruiting process and they're much more, you know, focused on the team that's, that's already there. Um, some States you can have, you know, some amounts of collaboration with the collective other States, you can't have any collaboration at all. Um, and so 
I do think it, it definitely makes it murkier. Um, I think that it's something that we will see as time goes on. You you will find that there's places and there's collectives that are going to get bad reputations. And there's going to be other collectives and other places that get you know really good reputations as hey. If you're dealing with them, you're gonna. It's gonna end up being what you know. If they told you their players were, you know, getting, you know, making this amount of money, that's what they were getting. Other places, they might tell you what the players are making, and it's a straight up lie because there's no really way to verify it. That's the crazy part. That there's not really a way to verify it unless you have like a team working. For, I mean, you have to invest to go try to find out. But at the same time, talking about a group of individuals that all have the same goal of helping a team make sure someone's committed to or, or convinced to come to that school. Have you seen agents enter in the recruiting process at all? Have you been as? Yes. Um, it, it's coming in and, and I'll be honest, there's some elements of the agent piece that's, that's good. And, and but there's some other, can you, can you expound that, on that a little bit? Yeah. Like what, what parts? Yeah. So particularly now, um, we've got a couple, uh, a number of players that are going to end up making a lot, a lot of money. Um, and, they need that advice. They need someone who can be guidance um, that's done it before, that's done it at a high level, that in some cases that has connections to help them make more money, but also in other situations that has just have experience in, hey, you don't need to worry about trying to take that deal because you know, you've gotten to a certain point where it's not worth your time and effort. It's gonna take you away from becoming a good football player which is then going to cost you more money down the line for the whatever the X number of dollars. So I think particularly at the high end, um, I think the agent piece is probably a really good thing with NIL being in existence that hey, you've got, if, if you're making, there's guys out there, if you're making a million dollars, if you're a 19 year old kid, you need somebody that can help you navigate, navigate that what to do with your money, how to, you know, approach different deals, all, all of those things. You need the right person. Um, it needs to be someone who's, you know, been around it, done it, um, whether it's at the college level or the NFL level. Um, so I think that's really, that's really good. And they can help you, you know, make more money and, and make good decisions. I think yeah, where, sourcing the deals from an agent standpoint at the college level, I mean, anything that's taking the attention off of the player in terms of bringing that to them. Yes. I, 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 I can get with that. Cause like you said, in the top end, Right now, you guys, Penn State has some top-end players when they're coming out. So just in the frame of it, I mean, two stars don't always need agents or whatever the case may be. But someone to look over your contracts, whether it's a bar or attorney or whatever that may be, but just understanding those different – having those different things in place to make sure that you're crossing all your T's and dotting your I's. But, yes, for the big – like the – the very notable players, sometimes having someone out there to get those and secure those deals is very beneficial. Yeah, and I think the other thing on, on the, the player that doesn't have as much natural value, um, that's where you start to see some problems with agents. Um, and there's good ones. There's good, there's good agents or whatever you want to call them, advisors. Um, there, there's, there's good ones at the, at the very low end, so I don't want it to sound like everybody that's you know, with smaller dollar amounts is, is not doing it the right way that doesn't know something. But in that pool of people, there are more agents and mentors and things that don't really quite understand it, don't necessarily have the best interest of the player in mind, aren't maybe as professional. I think that's where 
you worry a little bit about it because the, the, the player does need the help and does need the advice. But what ends up happening is, you know, as a school, we try and provide that. What ends up happening is I think in some cases you get somebody who doesn't have experience on the outside. It's not big dollar amounts and they're advising you to do something in the school, not even the school, but the consulting companies that we may have to support kids or workshops that we might have. There's, that you have good help there, but the kid may not take that help. Um, and I think that in some cases at that lower dollar amount, um, the barrier to entry for a, a, an agent there is a lot less. At the higher ends, just like the NFL draft, and it's <clears throat> the NFLPA does a really good job of controlling it and makes it so that everybody's qualified to at least a, a certain level. But if you're a first-round pick or a second-round pick projected in the NFL draft, your option for agents is different than if you're for sure going to be a free agent. You know, if I'm a, if I'm an agent, I make it, I make a percentage of what you make. Um, the better agents are going to go for the guys that they know are going to make more money. And the, the guys that have less ex, guys or girls that have less experience are going to have to, you know, battle over the others. Um, and that less experience isn't always bad, but sometimes can be. I don't your career. No, 100%. Because I think just it comes down to just for even the guys that I consult with or tell how to deal with agents when they're coming at the, into this time of their career. It's just like, all right, well, yeah, see if they can provide value and understanding where they fit when you go into the NFL. I have my own theory or my own stance on just the SRA and that whole situation and guys just using the NIL situation to get close to guys, to just sign them to the end of the deal. Because it's like, well, I mean, if you look at the players in the NFL, like, go get those guys NIL deals. Like, they can get marketing deals. Go, go help them out. That's, that's been my thing. But, that, but the specific group that you're talking about, the high-end player that needs the big deal, yeah, there's, there's value with different agents there. There's, agent, there's value with people sourcing deals for guys so that they can stay focused. But you're completely right. The, the information and where it's coming from is always shaky because – I know where when it gets to there, everyone's trying to get there for, like you said before, like with the same reason that you guys are wanting players to focus on to be the best player that they are at the end of the day, that's what the agent wants to, that's when agents typically cash out, right? SRA going to the NFL, like that's where the actual money is. So sometimes just playing that role of just being around and not really providing value. So it's like a, it gives you that longer span to evaluate the different representatives. I think that's the opportunity that it presents because when guys leave school now, it's like, oh, I got two months, two to three months to either figure it out or talk to someone's agent before. And it's just gives you another valuation point. So, I mean, there's 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 room for it in the definitely in the high school and college space, depending on how they operate. Um, Getting into the next thing, like just going through the recruiting process, I mean, we're talking about the different values of players. Is there I mean, I mean, even with just all the regulations that we're talking about with agents. Is there anything, if you're working at the NCAA regulations office, what would be one rule that you would put in place to limit some of the craziness going on in the recruiting space? Yeah. Um, thought about this one a little bit. And you guys, you and I talked about it a little bit off, off air here. You know, I think the thing that I've seen and as time goes on um, that I'd love to see change is the off field. We call them off field people. Now the non coaches have the ability to get on the road from an evaluation standpoint. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me that you have a coach who's going to coach a game on a Saturday afternoon and we expect him on a Friday night to be at a high school football game. Um, I don't think it's good for anybody involved. I don't think it's good for that coach. I don't think it's good for our, our organization. 
Um, I don't think it's good for college football. Uh, I think that we need to adapt and, and, and grow as a, as a, as a organization, if you will, you know, that was the case back, like I said, in 2005, there weren't recruiting people. We didn't, we didn't exist. And so, yeah, that had to be the rule back then because there might've been a couple of schools that did have them and, but the rest didn't, but at this level right now, everybody's got a recruiting staff. Some are bigger than others, and but that's okay. Uh, in my mind, we need to have a certain number of days. Yeah, you've got to cap how many days you can go on the road because if you don't cap the number of days in a competitive environment, one school might be out there, you know, hire 20 people to go out there and use all the days. Another school might not be able to do that. But if you cap the number of days, what does it matter if it's me or somebody else on the recruiting staff from a competitive standpoint versus a coach? Um, we talk all the time as, you know, staff members, that's how crazy the business has gotten and how, um, you know, difficult it is from a work-life balance. Um, that's something that can change that work-life balance dramatically if you let people that are not coaching the games to go out and, and do that. And I think the other thing that to me, I, I struggle with this sometimes. I've I become a big podcast guy. So I listen to a lot of podcasts and I, I find okay. them all interesting, but I don't watch TV, but you know, you listen to people talk and it's like, well, the coaches make all sorts of money. They, 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 sh they should stop complaining about it. And I get it. But unfortunately, people view college football. Um, they only know the head coach. And so they, in their mind, everything about college football is through the lens of what they know about the head coach. And yes, head coaches are making a lot of money right now. And they, and they deserve it. Deserve every penny, in my opinion, because they bring that value to their school. Um, but there are a lot of people working in college football, 90 plus percent of them that in reality aren't making big money. We're making careers and we're making livings and good livings. And I'm not complaining at all about it, but I think there's this perception of like, oh, they make too much money. Don't stop complaining. That's even at the highest levels is still a pretty select few. You mentioned you know, 60, 70, 80 people that, that may work around a college football program, nowhere near that make the money that the people kind of, and even media try and portray it to be. So I think it's important that, you know, work-life balance is there. I think this would add to it. Um, I think it would make for a, a better product. Um, and, I, and I don't think it hurts anybody. I think that's the other piece of it. I don't see the, the downside to it. I just think it helps things. So if I were sitting here saying, hey, one thing I'd, I'd love to change rule-wise, and there's a lot of things I'd love to change rule-wise, <laughs> um, that would be one that jumps to mind. And then the other one is we got to work on the recruiting calendar um, from a standpoint of start to finish. Um, it's got to be a holistic approach, um, and it can't be we're going to adjust this, and then we're going to adjust this. The, those adjustments just aren't working anymore. Um, we got to make a wholesale cell change, and hopefully we will, and I, I think we probably – probably will real quick the last thing i'd say is i i do think we've seen that you know the reason nil is here is because we realize there is a lot of money um in this you know operation in college college football in particular is a lot of money and we want we want more of that money to be able to go to the players um, i think we're coming to a time where we can more effectively and probably realistically and fairly distribute that money. Um, I think that's something that has to happen here too to 
because I think that's the thing. It's like, well, 30 years ago and particularly 50 years ago, the players were getting, I'm not going to say they're getting everything out of what they were putting into it, but their scholarship and the change of life, the money of TV wasn't what it was back then. So the school was getting something out of the player being there and, and vice versa. Now it's getting a little bit outsized there because the money has gotten so big. Um, we need that. I think that's why NIL is great and why we probably need to go even further. Yeah, I mean, you see it with the different conferences forming. You see USC, UCLA making their move to the East Coast, a little bit more eyes, primetime games, fan bases, and all those good things. I mean, even get to that whole point for the product to be so valuable, it all comes down. We always say it all comes down to talent acquisition at the end of the day. So when we've like trying to build that product, as a general manager, is there a prime trait that you're looking for when the recruiting process begins, like for a prospect? Yeah, so we're we're a big organization that talks about checking boxes and and it's interesting because we don't have some big sheet that's got a bunch of boxes that we check <laughs> we just all kind of naturally know that hey you know kid's a good person he's a good student um he's a good worker uh, he's a good teammate he's fast he's tall he's long all, all of those things and a lot of them are you know character traits a lot of them are physical traits um so I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, there's one thing. What I would say is what we're looking for, and I, I think good organizations are looking for that in football, is they're looking for players that check a lot of boxes. Haven't met one yet that checks every box, um, to a high level at least, uh, but you're looking for guys that, that check a ton of the boxes. Or if they're missing a few boxes, they better be elite in the boxes that they check. Um, and, and so I think that's the way that I kind of look at it. So starting out in the process, I'm by nature, I'm a speed, I'm a, a speed length guy. Um, but you better, you better check boxes and ultimately we can do without certain things, <clears throat> but you better check a, check a good number of those boxes. I like the speed length one, I mean, especially I, I try to always equate it to my friends or just people when I'm having normal conversations about the evaluation process and just why those things are so valuable in recruiting or just from a coaching standpoint when they're not trying to touch that. It's like, have you ever played a game or just watched something it's like that person is just not fast enough? It's demoralizing or there's a size difference from a length standpoint. Someone's just too big and just playing the game and you can't effectively do anything to stop that from happening. Like those are the two things that I feel like are just gut wrenching from someone that's not a part of the game. And so like when you when I try to explain that to prospects or even parents of prospects, I think they start to understand like those are key things that kind of make up for different things, right? Like if you have like maybe a step slower, but you had the length to kind of make up for different things on the field. We talk about numbers and angles in football and speed and length eliminates or accentuates those, that aspect of the, in football. Yeah, and you get into you get in a lot of debates, and people come from different families of how they look at it. And I think it's different at college than it is at the NFL. Um, yep. You know, I'm a big believer in testing. A lot of people will they kind of you know, <laughs> scoff at that. Testing numbers don't matter. It's not playing football, and I, I get that. Um, but to me, I want to know: Can I have information that's going to tell me that the kid? can athletically survive on our practice field, not even the game field. I want to know, hey, if he's out there in our practice field, is he the caliber of athlete that can make it? 
And there's a lot of other stuff that's going to go into being successful after that. But if they don't, like you said, like demoralizing, what's demoralizing recruiting to me is getting a kid, signing a kid, you get him the first, not the first day, but the let's say the first year, and you just know he's not this level of an athlete. Like there's nothing that can be done at that point, unfortunately. Right. And so to me, that's why I, I value the testing because I want to know, hey, is he in that group that can survive out there? And then is he more towards the side that can be successful and flourish? But he's got to be able to <clears throat> be able to survive out there at practice and and not be out of place um, in a negative negative situation. Or get anybody else on the team hurt because I think that's something else. Like we're not to the athletic caliber. You you're putting other people in danger as well. Like you're talking you know, top-level athletes that are performing at a high level. And, and you see it with linemen sometimes where they don't have the right feet. I mean, I've seen it even more at the XFL, just building out the different rosters and different linemen. It was like, oh, it's a, looking at the insurance, I was like, oh, this is, that's a problem. Like, you can't be out here. Like, it's going to get other people hurt. Do you have, a, a like, an overall philosophy in building, like, successful organizations or, like, a team, like, from your viewpoint? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll look at the, the football team standpoint of it. I think kind of what we started talking about at the very beginning here is is, is people. Um, you you got to fill the organization with good people. Um, and it's good, you know, as far as like the type of person they are, but it's also good in terms of talents and and have things that they can bring to the organization. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, starting-wise by staff, and it's their traits and their strengths and their, their experiences. I think that's a starting point. Same thing, you know, when it comes to players. Um, for for me, kind of like I said, I'm a, a speed guy at heart. I'm a, you know, size, speed, length, uh, all, all of those things. Um, and I think that you try to fill your team with as many of those those type of guys as you can from a characteristics standpoint. Um, people will talk, you, you don't want to... A, a team full of exceptions. You want guys that fit the the, the criteria that you're looking for. Uh, I do try to be balanced in that. Uh, I know there are there are organizations that this is the requirement, and we are not going outside of it. And there's nothing at all wrong with that. And I think there's a lot of places that are very successful looking at it that way. I got my start at the college level at Vanderbilt, um, and going back to checking boxes when I was there. You didn't check as many boxes as, as the teams you were playing against. Um, you had to find ways to find kids that could compete against, you know, the rest of the SEC. Um, when you knew recruiting-wise, you, you weren't going to beat them on a consistent basis. You would from time to time, but you weren't going to consistently do it. Um, can so, we stay on that Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt point for one second? Yeah. Like, just from the standpoint of evaluating at both schools, because – you talk the like when we talk about the developmental curve or just in that part of the recruiting process, how is that different at Vanderbilt versus Penn State? Like in terms of how much of a developmental guy that you're going to take that can perform on the field versus now in Penn State brushing up against like getting into the playoffs and eleven wins, you know, trying to win a national championship. Really interesting question. I didn't shoot the audience doesn't know us, but you and I used to have the debates here about this exact topic. And, yes. and not to put our business out there, but I'm more of Back then, I was more of a developmental guy, and still am largely. And you're probably more of a hey, immediately, you know, produce <laughs> now or or don't produce at all type of guy. And that's that's great. And you're right. Between those two schools, there is a difference, and you have to look at it differently. Um, at, at Vanderbilt, we had to go the developmental route because we ultimately had to have somebody 
who was or enough guys that were good enough to play in the NFL um, or had a chance to play in the NFL. And to do that, they had to have traits. They had to either be fast or they had to be long or they had to be you know, great instincts, whatever that those traits that were going to allow them to get there. But the boxes, like I said, at Vanderbilt, you, unfortunately at the time, you know, early on in the process there, you weren't going to be consistently, could occasionally, but you weren't consistently going to beat them on the recruiting trail. So other schools you were playing were checking more boxes. So one of the boxes being, you know, more physically developed, being further along in that developmental curve. Um, so we had to take guys that were maybe a little further behind the developmental curve, but that we saw the trajectory could get them there. And we might have to wait, we might have to, might have to redshirt them. We might have to play with more older guys, that type of deal. Here at Penn State, a little bit different. Um, you know, you, you're at a place where you can get more top-end talent um, and you can beat more people on the recruiting trail on a consistent basis. And so you can get guys that are more ready to play. Um, I think that where we're at right now, we try to do our best to blend the two. Um, and I think that that's, you know, you, you need to get, you know, we signed Deny Dennis Sutton last year. He was a guy that was kind of ready right away for the most part. Um, and then we signed, you know, other guys at the same defensive end position that we know maybe aren't ready right away. But, hey, if it hits Jason Oway, who's, you know, he wasn't a guy when we signed him that was going to hit right away. But he ends up being a first-round draft pick because he had the traits. He developed into that and ended up being, you know, a great player for us here. Um, and so you have to balance that because um, not every player is going to be all the way along. The, the traits and, and the developmental curve. So now here, I think we try to keep that, you know, where we came from concepts, but knowing that, hey, yeah, we can battle and we can beat teams on that higher-end guy. And that higher-end guy might not be the long-term better player, but is the better player right now because um, you have to have a roster full of guys that can play right now. And then we try to have some other guys that we're, you know, developing and that will you know, when the other guys leave, that will, you know, spike and be great players for us. No, I think that's a, that's a great point, just from the standpoint of the blending of the two is like the perfect thing. Because I think even coming from a standpoint of being he not heavy developmental, but just like being more keen to that, I feel like it helps when you're identifying younger guys on the recruiting trail just earlier in the process. When you have like a developmental eye, you can see a ninth grader or like that comes up and might run something because you're identifying those certain traits that may be accentuated before. And I think that's something when you merge, you, I mean, we, people forget that Saquon was committed to Rutgers at one point, right? Like, and so like, yeah, he's, he is the best ever now, but there is something that was to be seen then, right? Whether yeah, it was a three, guys was a three star that, prospect. And three, yeah, I don't want to. He went to an all-star game after high school and they made him play fullback. So, do you but understand he, what I'm saying? So like, I mean, developed. we told the, talk about the story just his short area quickness or like those elite traits that he did have that maybe got overshadowed by not having the up north you know big hype train around him you know going on sometimes that happens and i mean we're just thinking on just the talent acquisition process what can coaches and personnel professionals do i mean to kind of move up in the industry i mean you're somebody that works with bringing players into the organization and also hiring a lot of those, the 80 people on behind the scenes of a football organization and you're chiming in with the coaching staff. So like any career development 
pieces that you can have for a player that wants to transition into personnel off the field or that maybe just finding themselves at an entry-level role trying to move up or get on the field, whatever that may be in their career? Yeah. Every day is your resume. Um, and, and everybody that you're around, we talked earlier about connections, and, and connections are critically important, but they're important if that person is going to say a good thing about you to the person that's trying to hire you. Um, and so I think that that's a, a huge piece of it. If you're, let's say you're a, a former NFL player and you're trying to get in, what did your coaches think of you as a player? Were you the player who overachieved because of how you prepared and how you went about your business? Or were you the player who underachieved because you made it because you were just ultra talented, but you never really you know got where you, you could have been? I know who I want to hire, you know, because and in being a great player can help, but it's they're different traits that, that there are a lot of traits that will translate, but pure skill maybe isn't one of them. Um, so I think that's a, a big piece is, you know, who you are on a day-to-day basis and what the people around you are, are seeing you do work-wise. Um, once you're in the door, and I think getting in the door is a, is a tough first spot, um, you know, I'm a big believer in terms of getting in the door. I think this is hard for, for young people in particular, but really anybody. Um, in a lot of cases, you got to work for free. A lot of cases that you have to um, – show your value before you get anything at all out of it. Um, and the longer you're around, the better your chances are. You may have a, a day-to-day 1% chance of getting your break, but if I'm around a 1,000 days, I've got a lot better chance than if I'm only going to be able to be around for 10 days, I might not quite get in. So I tell our interns all the time, hey, the, long, the more you're in the building, the better. The longer you're able to work with our organization, you graduate school, you might have to go somewhere else um, and work there. Maybe you go to grad school and you go over to the football office and ask to help. Now you're around it longer. It might not happen at the pace you think it's going to happen, but the longer you're around it, if you keep doing a good job and people see you doing that good job, you'll get an opportunity. I think I'm, I'm a, a big believer in that. And it's hard because you, you got to make money at some point. You got to support yourself. And maybe you have to do that a different way, but you're still showing up to whatever the thing is that, that they need help with. Um, so that's kind of getting in. Once you're in, to me, once you're in the door, um, again, doing a good job. And I, 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 they're being a self-promoter. I wish I could sit here and say that doesn't help, but it does help. Being a self-promoter <laughs> helps. Um, but ultimately, if you're just a self-promoter and you're not producing and you're not a good employee, you'll eventually get found out and you'll eventually you know, kind of hit a, a ceiling where it's hard to get past that point. And you might stumble past it from a time to time, but then you're going to get knocked back down below it. So doing a good job, I think is a big piece of it. And then knowing people and and having, you know, having those connections. When I was first, when I was, you know, younger in this, I wasn't a big convention person, didn't really like them. I'm not a big, you know, new people. I didn't really love that. But the longer I'm in, I I think there is value in that. But I think sometimes when you're younger, it's like, I'm going to go to the coach's convention, and I'm going to shake somebody's hand, and I'm going to tell them about myself. 
and that guy's going to hire me the next week. No, you may shake that person's hand and you might be at three more jobs and you kept the relationship with that person and now you've got a resume that allows that person to feel like you're qualified for the job that they're hiring for eight years later. So the connection does matter, but is it the the immediate you know nature of it? I think people think no, it's it's the down the road, it's the the calls you get for jobs because you've been around people and they've you know met you. They said, ah, I kind of like this guy. He seems, he seems like he he knows what he's doing. He seems like he'd be good to work with. And they talk to their their buddy at another school while they're you know hanging out. And yeah, I, I worked with him. He, he's he's pretty good. That layer of trust. To, that that first layer of trust. Yeah, that leads to something. Whereas it's not just the, it's not just the connection. It's what the connection thinks of you and what you've done. That's it, man. What the connection thinks of you? Because I mean, we talk. I mean, talking about from players to coaches. Like, man, if you want to go on the field early, we say it's not about making plays first. It's like earning that coach's trust first. Because when they're coming into the staff meeting and they're going over their evaluations, they're coming from the standpoint: Can I trust this dude to do what I'm saying to do when I'm saying to do it? Now, if he can make plays doing that, even better. But, like, if you come in making plays your own way, I don't know if I can trust you. So then I'm like, ah. And, and, you, and you and I know this from the personnel side of things. We get frustrated with coaches because they don't like just, hey, this guy's really talented. He's making plays. Yeah, he screws up a little bit. Let's, let's be okay with that. We probably feel a little different. But from coach's right. perspective, the trust yeah. is more important to them than the play you might make um, in a lot of cases. Now, at a certain point, the being a playmaker just overwhelms it. But – you know, I, there's so many, like, even at the NFL level, I think, and, and you played there and you know this way better than I do, but like, there's a small segment of the NFL that's just dramatically more talented than the rest. The rest of the NFL, it comes down to who they are as people and who they are as pre- how they prepare, you know, how smart they are as far as football goes, all of those things. And there's honestly a, a lot of people that could make it. It's not, I couldn't make it no matter how hard I worked at it, but. There are, there's a pool of people that could, and there's a lot of guys starting in the NFL that aren't that much more talented than the guys that never sniffed it. That is a fact. Like, I mean, just based, that is a hundred percent fact. Like you said, there's a, that small group that kind of separates themselves, but everyone else is like based on all those different boxes that you check, how you show up every day. To, even when you're talking, we're talking about the uh, interns, like the availability in the NFL best trade is being available. I mean, I had an injury, but like you can't let someone else jump into that because, and then you lose trust that way. I remember was coach bag. I mean, I lost trust from having like cramping up and soft tissue injuries. All right. You can't have two minute and your starting nickel is getting hurt all the time. And that's a level of losing trust, not just not making plays, but like all those different things. Cause that comes into the evaluation process. If a guy's missing practice because he's not going to the cold tub or taking care of his body and he talks to the trainer and the trainer's like, well, he doesn't take care of his body. It's like, well, how serious is he really about this craft or what he's trying to do? Can I trust him to get all these reps or take away the reps from these, all these different people that want to eventually play? But while we're speaking on the elites, I mean, you've seen your fair share, right? You've seen Saquon. I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but you've seen enough at least to answer this question. What's the common denominator from the elites that you've seen? And yeah, so I'll start with, first of all, we use the word elite probably a little bit too much. True. In, in, in my mind, the elite's a much smaller number than probably people think. I'm old now, but the, the term goat is thrown around to guys that are like the 100th best player in the country. <laughs> and it's like, 
he's not the goat. There's right. one, you know, but but in terms of the you know, kind of the common denominators, first of all, if you're going to be elite, you have to have the physical traits that the position requires. Uh, and I would say requires that the position you know, wants, if you will, you, you have to have it. You have to be physically extremely talented. Now, from that segment of people that fit into that category of they've got the requisite physical traits, probably the personal trait that stands out the most to me is competitiveness. If I were to find one, like the guys that I've been around, you know, Micah Parsons is elite. You know, he's, he is competitive. Like Saquon Barkley is super competitive. Um, those are the guys that, you know, they have the physical traits, but their competitive drive, one results in them working very hard um, to get better. But in every, to be elite, I think there's, some aspect that you have to, I don't say every moment, but in almost every moment, you have to be at your peak performance. Um, and to do that, you have to be really competitive. The, the, the you know, the you know, Saquon Barkley, you play him in Connect Four, he is going to be competitive as heck. Micah Parsons, you play him in Cornell, and I've done it, he's going to cheat to beat a 12 year old girl. Like, <laughs> just because his mind won't allow him to to not compete in that moment. So I think that's the thing you, you have to be in the subset of people that have the traits, but then for me, that's, if I were sitting here saying one thing that that's it, and it's gotta, that competitiveness has to drive your work ethic, your work ethic. Uh, that, that's yes. for, for me, that's it. Cause you want to compete in everything, right? I'm trying to compete and, and, and when and I'm everything. working out and that's Micah and like I, I, those are two that stuck out with Micah and Saquon, like super competitive. I remember walk, we were at the Fiesta Bowl. And looking at the looking after the game room, and it's like the day before the game, and Saqu- Saquon and uh, Jarvis were wrestling. I'm like, like, you're about to be a first round pick. Like, why? Like, why are you wrestling? Like, stop wrestling. You know what I mean? Yeah. And same with Micah. And like, I just remember the type of competitiveness he used to have, just calling people out in practice in our, you know, lions den or the different competitive drills. And it just when it when you see it, it does tick different. It looks different. I remember guys that I played with. I mean, I remember Tomba had that like. He he had like a different take, just that competitive nature thing. I mean, even just shout out to Galco, but we used to cancel an argument because he said it was three C's of uh, Eric Galco. He's the um, director of the Shrine Bowl, but he had his things of three C's, but he was, always starts like, it's first his character. I was like, no, competitiveness. Like, I don't <laughs> care about anything. First competitiveness, yep. like before anything. But uh, when we were our evaluation, we needed to make sure our character was tight because we were going through like a corporate background check. So he was right about that part. <laughs> But, man, this was great, man. I'll just leave it with this, man. There's no passion to be found playing small and selling for a life that is less than one that you're capable of living. Nelson Mandela is something that we live by here at the Blue Chip Academy. So, Andy, thank you for coming on and just sharing so much about the recruiting process, just the back end of uh, the business of football and how to go through the process and build an uh, organization. It starts with the people and understanding that and making sure you guys have, like, the right information going through the process and we're here at Blue Chip Academy with the branding and the NIL recruiting era and blueprints of success for those that nice objective um, guidance through this process. You guys check in. We'll have all that here at the bottom. And we'll have Andy's 
Twitter handle. What is your Twitter handle so people can find you, Andy? I had to look it up. It's Andy Frank P- at Andy Frank PSU. Not not, <laughs> not a social that, media guy. Yeah, he's he's not. He's always uh, in the background handling some complex issues. But again, thank you so much for jumping on. We really appreciate the time and yeah, class is dismissed. Justin, it was fun. Appreciate it. Man, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Blue Chip Academy. To help navigate the recruiting waters, LIG Sports Group put together a Blue Chip Recruiting Checklist. Download your checklist at LIGsports.com Blue Chip Academy to ensure you're making informed decisions through this process. Hit subscribe and check out the LIG Sports Group Football Ops Recruiting YouTube channel where we'll talk about the recruiting and other critical points in the football ecosystem. If you're feeling stressed, confused, or just want help putting together a blue chip blueprint for you and your son, don't hesitate to book a console call with me at LIGsports.com backslash Blue Chip Academy. Remember, everyone has a different journey. Keep sharpening and remember that you can only go to one school. Just make sure that you have your blue chip blueprint together and execute it. Life is good.